mainstream society and cities have a very modern code. You know, it's retail downstairs, it's residential upstairs. You know, there's parks, but you can't have open fires. There's this, there's that. Everything has a code and everything is zoned for what it can be. You're told what it can be. So it's actually more proactive to say, hey, no open fires here, but you can have a parade. You can have a pop-up. You can have a hamburger stand. You can camp. You can do this. And so it's actually more positive to create zoning around what is not allowed and allowance for everything else. And we're starting to see more and more of that, which is really, really exciting. Hey, it's Stan Stoniker back with another episode of the Hub Culture Chronicles. This time we're in the beautiful Pacific city of Vancouver, and we're talking to thought leaders and innovators here in the city. You may have listened to the last episode where we yawned together looking at the cultural revolution and psychedelics. Today, we're going to take it a step further and look at cultural transformation. Joining me is a wonderful Jen Sander. Jen is the global head of innovation and new initiatives at Burning Man. So Jen, it's great to have you on the Chronicles. Thanks, Dan. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, we've had a number of adventures over the years, and it's wonderful to return to some of these recurring topics that we've explored. And you are one of the thought leaders that I know and kind of respect the most in terms of how you understand how things are evolving. So I guess this is really what your role is, right? What does it mean to be the global lead of innovation for Burning Man? Well, I look at it as three things, really. In one way, it is paying attention to what's actually happening at Burning Man at Black Rock City for that one week period and the lead up to it. It's very much understanding what the social norms are and what the senses of permission are that allow us to actually prototype a city and build it, as well as kind of bring that sense of play that actually allowed the 10 principles to sort of emerge that we now refer to very often but wasn't necessarily the kind of container initially that led to the creation of them. We often say that Burning Man is, you know, a place of non-prescription and that the 10 principles arose out of pure experience versus prescription. So what happened there? What's the container? How does it work? How is it a Petri dish for innovation? The second thing is, is really more geographical. It's sort of like what's happening as a result of Black Rock City. How is it affecting Reno? How is it affecting Gerlach? How is it affecting the neighboring area, San Francisco? How is it really kind of changing the ecosystem and the startup culture around the area where it operates? And that applies to all of the regional offshoots. We have many, many regionals around the world and various different communities and cultures drive the development of those pop-up cities and have been developed um, and influenced as a result of them. And sort of the third one is a little bit more meta. It's kind of like what's happening as a result of that Petri dish or that pop-up temporary zone. So how is Burning Man culture affecting corporate culture? How is it affecting civic design at large? How is it affecting even legislation and public-private partnership at large? as well as individual ritual. Because as you know, we have people who sort of come as a pilgrimage from all around the world and then take pieces of that experience back into their daily lives. So it's a really big remit. How did you end up in this role? How did you get the job? You know, I count my lucky stars very often, but 
I think it really came down to the fact that I grew up very dyslexic as well as mixed race and had a keen understanding of what it meant to be a part of many, many, many different things. I was the youngest of eight kids and I never really ruled anything out and I never really fully believed anything either. I was always curious and playing in different, many different arenas, one could say. And so basically for me, I was living in the UK when I first went to Burning Man. I'd never actually stepped foot in San Francisco. I digital hitchhiked to the event (laughs) through some sort of online list of people who were going to be a part of a pop-up incubator. And at the time I was running an early phase incubator in 2009 in London after the recession. And I was very intrigued by the idea of this quote unquote pop-up incubator that was actually just one camp. And I didn't even Google image search Burning Man. I, I completely thought that I was going to some sort of festival that had to do with camping. And I was super excited to meet these people who were early phase incubator people, let alone did I realize that once I got there, that the whole thing was a giant incubator and that was just one camp within the whole thing. I actually showed it's up. It's almost Hellenic in that way. Absolutely. Completely. And I showed up with like a, a bikini top and like a snowboard jacket and some jean shorts. And I had no idea. But basically what happened is when I went back to the UK where I was living, I kind of felt like a like an ass. Like I was kind of like, oh, wow, I really didn't bring as much as other people. I didn't really know what I was stepping into. How am I going to do my part? And so what I did is I publicized a whole bunch of innovation that I'd seen there. Some cool stuff that I'd seen with drones and with 3D printing and other interesting projects. And I got a a large spread and wired, and I think the Wall Street Journal. And as a result, I blew up some of my dearest friends' companies. I didn't know them at the time, but now they're some of my dearest friends. And then some of the founders just sort of called me and were like, you know what? We'd love to share our vision for the future. We think we're going to turn into a nonprofit. And I sort of shared my vision of what I thought their impact potential was. And then we just kind of continued this sort of dance until I eventually moved to SF and, and knocked on their door one day and said, hey, let's, let's do this. So It's really interesting because the role that you have is almost, I've heard you say before, it's a little bit like a membrane. Mm-hmm. It's a role that you have that's in a way kind of amorphous because a lot of what you do is especially look at how the world interacts with Burning Man but also how Burning Man interacts with the world. I've always found that really an interesting place for you to believe in and to be in. And speaking of that, it is a little bit about like identifying the multiple realities, but what about for yourself? Like, how did you start to bend your reality and begin to become a creator, so to speak, in in this context? Yeah. So kind of what I was saying earlier about being dyslexic, I struggled a lot in the academic system. And I think very much that my role at Burning Man and, you know, as a innovation advisor in general was largely possible due to the fact that I never really fit into the education system. And as a result of that, yeah, as a result of that, I always felt like failure was the commonality for me. And most people who are innovating or deviating from the norm are often, you know, great risk takers or applauded for having the courage to step out of the norm. Whereas people who don't actually fit into the education system, they don't need to be applauded for, you know, following their curiosity and and taking risks because actually failure is the commonality. And so stepping outside of what I knew was actually survival. 
It was the only way not to fail, really. And I first realized this, I think, when I was probably in about the sixth grade and we were doing a science exam on the evolutionary process. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had not memorized my book. I mean, I tried as much as I could, but I just didn't have the information in my brain. I couldn't sit still. I just couldn't digest it all. And so at recess, I encouraged a bunch of my friends to play, make a skit, make a play of the evolutionary process. So different people played different roles. And as we did that, I was able to piece together the full story that I needed to pass the exam. And when we walked into the classroom after recess, a bunch of the kids were kind of like, hey, teacher, 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 we have something we want to share with you. And of course, the teacher can't say no when all these children are all excited and united. So that was another lesson I learned is like, oh, wow, when we all say we want to do something together as a united force, that also changes things. And so the teacher let us do our skit. so interesting. Yeah, she let us do our skit. And as a result of us doing the skit, we all got Bs and then there wasn't enough time left to do the science exam. (laughs) And then I literally went home and was like, you know, my mom said, oh, you know, what did you do at school today? And I was kind of like, I made believe my own reality. And then I kind of realized that I could be in control of my outcomes after that. A lot of people believe Burning Man makes believe its own reality, but actually even more than that, that it manifests its own reality, that it's almost a place where you can go to learn the tools of manifestation and co-creation and, you know, your wishes, the playa's command, right? So that's so interesting. But beyond the playa, you also have a consulting agency. It's called Play Atelier. I love that name. And it feels like it's a little bit of an extension from maybe that first skit, mm-hmm. right? I often find that you end up doing the things in a way that you did when you were a kid. For me, I used to build lounges <laughs> when oh, I was a kid goodness. out of Legos. And then now we have hubs. I mean, oh it's gosh. really incredible. Like I used to fight with my brother and we'd be playing Legos and he his fightership would always be like, capable of shooting down something because you could crash it in. But mine were always interior designed lounges. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's hilarious that that's what I ended up doing. Anyway, that. but what about Play Atelier? What, what does it stand for? So Play Atelier is my consultancy, but it's also kind of like a formula for, for life for me. I'm a firm believer in the power of play. And, and I also love the Atelier. The Atelier is a kind of a foreign word to Americans in some regards, but basically it's kind of like Da Vinci's workshop or the secret lair. And it's a cross-generational place where the apprentice and the enthusiast are, are learning from each other, but co-creating at the same time. And so Play Atelier really is an ideology of creating containers that allow for experimentation, but also very much the idea of how you can go through life and how you can encourage collaborations and how you can explore explore potentials. It's through this sort of multi-generational, multidisciplinary environment that I bring to all my clients and all of my innovation visioning work. I feel like it's a really central part of your work identity. It really is. But I want to take it a little step back now. Like let's let's look out and zoom out a little to the wider aspect beyond Jen, beyond the playa, to all of us, what do you think is like our human-led ability to innovate and evolve in the context of play? So I believe that our human-led ability to innovate and evolve is free play. It is basically doing things for no reason. It's getting lost in time. 
It's not being overly concerned with outputs and more focused on the journey. And I think that it is something that we all can do. Like if you watch children or you watch animals, you can tell when, an, when a dog's playing because they have this sort of like, you know, they have a play bow as, you know, you can remember like the their dog. little paws yeah, out in front paws and they're bending down and they're kind of entering into this psychological permission space where they then are going to, you know, do something a little bit silly for a minute. And back in the day before our culture was so defined before we had university and we had high streets and we had social behavior, we used to learn through interacting with that, which we did not know. And now we really just don't really create that many spaces for ourselves to do things that we don't know. We, we lean into our strengths versus our weaknesses and we just run with what we think we're good at and don't really create that much room for deviation. From well, it's things. also the, it's, I think increasingly, especially in the West, it's the context of capitalism. Exactly. Like capitalism doesn't really create any space for a place that has an outcome that isn't money oriented and play by its very definition is not work. And so I think that there's a huge element to that right there. And mm -hmm. it's why I think play, this thesis of play that you have is so in interesting and valuable because, you know, I, I have a lot of theories about like where the value is being created in the economy and in the culture. But I think you said to me once, it's not where everything is already prescribed because that's where the value has actually already been extracted. Mm -hmm. It's not only been created, it's actually been extracted right. because it's now formulaic. There's actually nothing new there. Right. Okay. So how does the average person, our listener, develop their creative abilities through play? You said a lot of people don't really know how to play. Or what it is even. So often when we think we're playing, we're actually just following rules of a game. And I'm not going to argue that games aren't play they absolutely are, but there's a difference between a form of play, a form of free play that helps us tap into our abilities to innovate and simply following the rules of the game. So, you know, that's really interesting. So there's like free play and there's confined play, but they're not the same thing. Exactly. And I wouldn't absolutely define it as free play because free play is also a term in the video gaming world that is similar but different. Yeah. So for the purpose of this conversation, let's just call it free play. But ultimately, what I'm getting at here is that very often when we think we're allowing ourselves to follow our creative potentials and when we think we're allowing ourselves to step out and have a break or take a pause or do something fun and then we think we're actually playing, we're still following rules of a prescribed version of society. For children, it's a little different because they're literally growing in real time and learning in real time. They haven't programmed their brains yet. But for adults, a lot of the time, we're simply following rules of a game. So in order for the average person to tap into this, we really have to create space for the unknown. We have to ritualize doing things that we've never done before and actually allow ourselves to step into a mindset where we might look silly. We might be doing something for no reason. And it's really hard to do things for no reason. Often, you know, playing Monopoly might be doing something for no reason, but it's also very different than helping your neighbor paint their fence and then finding yourself daydreaming and then realizing, oh my goodness, I just found the solution for that problem that I was trying to crack at work. And I didn't, I didn't arrive at it through sitting with a pen and paper 
and humming and hawing over potentials. I found it through stepping out and doing something totally different, which actually allows the neuroactivity in your brain to form new pathways. And when the neuroactivity in your brain forms new pathways, you come up with new solutions for ideas and problems. Because when you go back to work on Monday and you go back to that problem you were trying to crack, you're able to reconfigure the sort of knowledge of where you were thinking in a different way. I love it. I mean, that's like such a beautiful reason for creating this kind of space for the unknown. Exactly. Let's like, let's go back to the playa for a second. So I'm so interested in what the org and the burn are going to be like 195 days from now when we return to the playa in a world that is post-renegade because the impacts of the renegade burn, I think are going to have some influence on the culture of Burning Man because we, we learned a lot last year from what happened. But beyond that, how can other, like say a startup ecosystem or a city learn from what's happening with Burning Man? So Burning Man is a startup ecosystem. And historically, when we try and innovate in the real world, it usually happens as a result of some kind of constraint. So like a reaction to a constraint? Exactly. So there was a lot of startup culture that happened as a result of the recession. Why was that? It was because there was a lack of resources available. People couldn't afford to go to university and there was no jobs. And crypto happened because of the banking crisis. Exactly. So often what happens is that this sense of startup ecosystem or the sense, the sense of application of play and creating opportunities for yourself is driven from a constraint of some kind. Now, Burning Man, Black Rock City is a proactive creation of a sort of constraint. It's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs in a way whereby we strip away convenience stores, we strip away hotels, we strip away everything that we're used to. And we proactively, ritualistically allow ourselves to go on this pilgrimage into the unknown where we have to bring everything with us and recreate our own sense of comfort, our own sense of shelter, our own sense of food, our own sense of entertainment. And as a result of that, we very quickly learn how to adapt to what we don't have. We learn that we don't need what we thought we needed and we learn how to create. We begin to enter this maker mindset And then that's where new connections are built, where cross-cultural relations are made through this kind of mixing of ideas and people and opportunities where you start to realize your role as an individual in the collective. And so how do we proactively do this? How do we proactively create this sort of sense of innovation and startup mindset in our ecosystems? Now, when you brought up the Renegade Burn, I think that's a really great example because it is something that happened as a result of this proactive pilgrimage that we've had for years with Black Rock City. And an interesting constraint was created whereby we couldn't have that pilgrimage anymore. And so all of a sudden, it's almost like a meta proactive reactive thing where all of a sudden people were like, you know what, there's probably not going to be any arts. But let's just go anyways. Oh my goodness, we're probably not going to be able to share food as abundantly as we previously There won't were. be porta potties. There will not be porta potties, but let's just do anyways. And like, we don't even have to talk about the renegade bar. We could look at people being cooped up in their apartments and 
all of a sudden realizing, oh my goodness, I've never been to the national park down, you know, in my state. I should go and realizing they want to go more than ever because they've been cooped up in their apartment. So this appreciation for nature, but guess what? There's no open amenities in that park right now. So, okay, we'll bring our own compostable toilet or we'll create our own resources. But then it gives people the realization, oh my goodness, what more could I create? I never thought I would be able to do that or I would do that. What are some examples of these permission zones? Like we, we see the sparks all over, but how is this taking root? So Berlin, Montreal, Detroit, New Orleans, these are all very interesting ecosystems, okay? Berlin, you know, there's a lot of startup culture happening there. There's a lot of permission that happened there, but most of it was people trying to recreate or regenerate from a lack of resources or, you know, sort of forgotten spaces and regenerating a place. And then there's places like Montreal where they've sort of wanted independence and never been able to get it. And so there's kind of like a disregard for the authority. But then as a result of that, it's created a more playful ecosystem where you'll find restaurants with three tables in them and kind of this more boutique artistic culture where where young people and artists can thrive and live. So, and then New Orleans is another example, you know, it's like, you can do a parade in the middle of the street at any point in time. And, and there is kind of like a civic allowance for taking over public spaces. I think that- In a way for co-creation. And for co-creation, exactly. And so historically, again, coming back to what you were asking me before, a lot of these permission zones have been to do with different conditions that happened in different places. Now, mainstream society and cities have a very modern code. You know, it's retail downstairs, it's residential upstairs. You know, there's parks, but you can't have open fires. There's this, there's that. Everything has a code and everything is zoned for what it can be. It's you're told what it can be. One of the most interesting ways to allow for permission zones historically, and and certainly we're seeing more of now, is the fact that cities can actually be zoned for everything else except for what they cannot be. So it's actually more proactive to say, hey, no open fires here, but you can have a parade, you can have a pop-up, you can have a hamburger stand, you can camp, you can do this. And so it's actually more positive to create zoning around what is not allowed and allowance for everything else. And we're starting to see more and more of that, which is really, really exciting. Permission zones can also be psychological. So physical permission zones are Black Rock City or some of these cities that I described. Psychological ones are when you allow freedom and connectivity to guide your decision-making. So that might be when you- And that could be even like corporate, like a company policy. Exactly. But on an individual level, it might be kind of like, oh, I'm going to walk home the long way, or I may be doing a presentation on designing a new bridge in my city, and I'm going to go sit underneath a bridge and do my closing slide sitting underneath the bridge. You know, allowing yourself this sort of permission to think differently and do something in a different way than you normally would. And how, and how we're bringing that to corporate culture right now in this moment where people are really talking about how the Boston consultants or the McKinsey's or what have you have not really been catering to economic change 
as it relates to creative potential and advisory is a really interesting new leveling up for people to realize. And so historically, we'd go to a service or a consultancy to tell us how to do something. But now we're realizing that through this disruption that we've been through, we can give ourselves our own psychological permission. That's, that's really quite something because I, it makes me wonder like if there's actually an opportunity for the leveling up of creative consulting that could compete in a way with management consulting, but that's another conversation. That's another conversation, but I think it's definitely true because a lot of the kind of quote unquote creative consultants have either been McKinsey or Boston, or they're known as the kind of like cuckoo, woo woo, other ones that usually don't get the clients until, you know, they, they need the wild card. And they also feel like one-offs. Like they don't actually persist, mm-hmm. you know, which is also something to do with the, the structures of corporations. But that's going to evolve with DAOs, I think, especially as like governance becomes a defining point of how corporations are run in the new like Web3 era. Okay, so you mentioned COVID a couple of times and how things feel kind of coming out of that couple of years that we've just done. How does that mesh with this idea of creating space for the unknown and the mindset? Has COVID changed how all this is playing out? Is it accelerating it? Is it changing it because of things like the metaverse, which are now feel greatly accelerated because we've just gone through this whole internal reflection? Is it all psychological anyway? Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot there. I definitely think that the way that cities have been zoned for like physical permission zones is changing. You know, people can drink outside in parks now. There's a lot more delivery. And because there's more delivery, you're seeing fancy restaurants operating out of shipping containers. I heard a story actually about how in the UK, there was a whole bunch of restaurants that migrated to train containers and and train stalls outside train yards. And actually, they were just cooking their food in those kind of containers and then just having large delivery programs where they would then deliver the food. And it's kind of the same thing as what we saw pre-pandemic with opportunity zones and people kind of incubating different business models in pop-ups. And then once they grew to scale or created festival mentality around it and had engagement and they move into brick and mortar buildings after incubating in containers, sort of yeah. kind of like how Tony Sheen Almost the food truck. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, there's stuff like that that's happened, but I definitely think that one of the core things that COVID has done to help accelerate this sort of permission for play mindset and kind of permission zones is through a deeper understanding of the role of the individual in the collective. So just like at Burning Man, where you know that you're supposed to be a part of a gift economy and think about what your how you are going to show up to support the collective. And then in that somehow you self-actualize in a way where you feel more individualized via thinking of yourself through the collective. I think that in some regards, COVID has allowed us to kind of understand our role in what the new kind of holistic systems might be. As we've seen how we don't actually, we haven't actually been served as well as we'd like to by some of our systems. And a lot of people are trying to move to rural areas or different areas 
and then reimagining their role in the part of the collective, whether that's prioritizing frontline workers in a different way or being in an environment where you maybe have to drive to get your groceries and you interact with somebody for like once a week and then how you talk to those people and treat those people when you go home. We've all kind of really started to understand that we need to create more holistic ecosystems and rebuild our kind of right living model, gone back to basics in some regards and seen how we actually play a role in the world that we want to create. But, you know, I think also on a wider level, there has also been this test, which is really the first time probably for Gen X and below, yeah, debatable for baby boomers to actually have to essentially make a sacrifice for the society that isn't directly benefiting yourself. I mean, if you're wearing a mask, like sometimes like you don't maybe want to wear a mask because you already had COVID or you're vaccinated, whatever. We've all been forced to have these uncomfortable things, but we're told that it's part of the society. I think that's why there's been such a backlash in the UK against Boris and the number 10 parties, because Mm -hmm. everyone's like, wait a second, you told us we can't have parties. We're three people max in a thing. And then you guys are having parties. And there's something about that that really grates mm-hmm. on the, the collective because it's not a sacrifice to stay home for six months, but it is. And it's a new kind of sacrifice. And it's something that our generation hasn't really been put to the test for. Like we have not been asked to sacrifice. We've been told to consume and to excel. And I do think that there has been like a very interesting psychological experience there because of how some people react versus how others react. 100%, 100%. Even just testing before you go to gatherings, you know, there's been a lot of thinking about how you're going to show up. And also since we're spending a lot more time preparing, we allow ourselves to show up in a different way and how we're going to, even on Zoom. We have to select what we do. Well, even on Zoom, you know, but I think that cocktail hour has has become a little bit more popular and just like literally people being like hey i'm on zoom at three o'clock in the afternoon i'm gonna put on a show i'm gonna do something entertaining when i'm talking to people i'm gonna change my background i'm gonna try and think about the experience of the person when i'm delivering information or engaging with them so there's been a little bit of that so one thing we we've talked a lot about this in the context of the individual we talked about in the society but Who's somebody that you would like to play together with? Like, I feel like you and I have done some playing over the last year. We've <laughs> we've gone to various cities. We're going to have another discussion about a concept that we call the great unknown, which will be part two of this conversation with you. But who's somebody besides myself that you would love to work with? Or, But when I say work with, I mean to play with. I have a large amount of respect for Tyler Brule from Monocle Magazine. I think that Monocle Magazine does a really great job of really evaluating new models and systems, programs, zoning in cities, the size of cities, how holistic ecosystems work in a way that is entertaining and interesting to read about. They're literally going through sociocultural landscapes and identifying the things that make us happy. Like, why do you stop when you're driving on driving from one city to another city? Oh, it's it's playful signage that is, you know, a new laundromat, a new whatever that makes you think, okay, let's stop in this town and get a coffee. They really do a great job of understanding both what motivates a startup ecosystem and how to categorize and share the conditions of it. And I think that that's really important because right now we're going through this kind of sort of dangerous moment because everybody is speaking the same language, but not everybody 
has the same knowledge, even though we have the same vocabulary. And pre-COVID, I used to be able to identify those who thought similarly to me because there wasn't that many of them. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's speaking the same language and it's almost like woke wash. It's almost like green wash, you know? And I've like, been hearing a lot about woke wash lately. Exactly. And so I think one of the most important things that we can do is actually talk about the conditions around what those things are that we're speaking to so that other people can learn from them. And I really think that- But is it really our- So one of the things that bothers me about that a little bit is that there's this condition- where everybody sort of thinks they're enlightened on some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's also really difficult to sit there and be like, well, you're wrong and I'm right mm -hmm. on some of these things. But there's also like the proof in the pudding mm -hmm. in terms of what actually works. Right. You know, Burning Man works as an innovation and incubation playground. Mm -hmm. And we have proof of that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other things that are probably less reliably established. Well, it's become a part of social corporate responsibility to all of a sudden be talking about how we shouldn't be, you know, displacing social workers, we shouldn't be displacing artists, we shouldn't, we should be creating more opportunities for entrepreneurialism. But not very many people necessarily know what that means or how to do that. And on a very simple level, it means creating permission for experimentation and, and exploration without it leading to something, as we've just discussed. But it also means looking at those conditions. Like I said, you know, in Berlin, it was a lot of it was about rejuvenation of something that had already happened. In Dubai, it's very, very proactive. We were just in Dubai and it's super interesting because Dubai is both rural as well as urban. And it was a place that went through a massive boom due to like industry, you know, gas and power and all sorts of you know, natural resources that then brought a lot of money and then brought a lot of conventional top-down imported intelligence. So they brought people in to this place to have them redefine and recreate the cities. And then as a result of that spirit, privatized industries started coming in too and pushing up against some of that as well. And then some of it worked out, some of it didn't. And what do you have is a, a co-creative community, a co-creative culture that is a mashup of many cultures that literally is one that is always pushing up against each other to redefine the most innovative exploratory norms that a multicultural environment can have. And as a result of that, all sorts of interesting things are happening in the shadows of these skyscrapers. It's not just huge world's tallest buildings. It's also, you know, we saw tons of food trucks and, and, and creative things happening and, and, and young people playing, you know, soccer in parking lots in urban squall. And this is a very interesting co kind of mashup that you don't see in many places because they have literally ritualized the fact that they are continually building culture and defining the future city together it is not defined they are defining it as they go and that mm -hmm. sense of curiosity is embedded proactively in the dna yeah it's like a fast moving stone okay we're we've got to wrap up here we are going to be back with another discussion that we're calling the great unknown which is going to cover a lot of what we've just talked about with these permission zones and where we can spot and identify some of the most interesting things happening around the world. And I'm going to be so excited to have that conversation with you. Just as a final question, yeah. 
what are you doing for yourself now? We talked about how you got to your role at Burning Man, what play looks like for you and what I call your play thesis and how that can be applied to other people. But how are you applying it to yourself right now? So one of my favorite things to do is social experiments. And I, I always give myself the psychological permission to do it on my birthday. And so on my birthday every year, I do something completely random and weird that allows me to learn. I invite all of my friends and I honestly highly suggest it for those of you who've never really done any sort of weird, innovative thing and you don't really know how to start, start with your birthday. Everyone will show up. People will come. It does not need to make sense. And you can do all kinds of weird things. I've done stuff from culinary retreats where I've made people catch their own food to I've written interactive novels and murder mystery parties. I think that one of my favorite ways to apply play to my life is actually through just experimenting on my birthday. Cause why not? But I also, you know, I throw retreats and I invite people who know things that I know nothing about. And I encourage them to co-create with me so that we can all learn from each other. And in that, you know, you're able to kind of like do jazz. Jazz is a really important form of play too. So through creating these kind of retreats and bringing people together across industry that I don't know, and I don't know what what, what really I'm going to learn and giving them a platform, as well as just simple things like experimenting on my birthday. That's kind of how I play. I also like to kind of throw dinner parties and often sometimes I'll even just burn food because then everyone will be like oh my god Jen you did something wrong we're gonna step up in the kitchen and help and then you get everybody kind of doing stuff that they wouldn't normally do burning with intentionality (laughs) by by Jen Sander from Burning Man (laughs) I mean it's all really about just like getting people involved well I think that's a great way to end it I hope you our listeners have enjoyed this conversation. Jen, thanks for taking the time to play with us and share some of your thoughts about how we're co-creating the future society. This is really a conversation that started back in Davos with you in 2020. If you look back through some of the Chronicles podcasts, there are a couple of touches on these subjects and it's really fun to check back in with you and see how this is all evolving. For the rest of you, there are more episodes of the Chronicles available wherever you get your podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and other places in the metaverse. We will look forward to seeing you at some live hubs coming up later in the year and catching up with more content and more conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people we know. Until we talk about the great unknown, I would like to say thank you, Jen, and lovely to be in your beautiful city of Vancouver. Thanks so much, Dan. 